You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. My staff, we've been working remotely for, for years. So it's, we come and go as we please. We, we work from the coffee shop, work from, you know, wherever. That's always been the culture of my department. But having other people in the city who are used to being behind a cubicle or used to being behind a, a, a glass partition where they're talking to customers or talking to citizens face to face, you see that trend of the, it, it's, everything slows down for a little bit for those, those areas, those departments, and then it started to slowly ramp up as people got used to the idea of working at home. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Last December, Chattanooga, Tennessee was selected as one of only two U.S. cities in a new global initiative to use broadband connections and data to plan and utilize energy, transportation, healthcare, and communications in a more sustainable and equitable manner, essentially to accelerate their evolution into one of the top smart cities in the world. The other city chosen was San Jose, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. These two U.S. cities, along with 34 others around the world, were chosen to help pioneer a smart technology policy roadmap. Why is this so important? Well, recent analysis from Frost and Sullivan projects that investment in smart cities by 2025 will equal an estimated $327 billion and could spur up to $2.5 trillion in business opportunities in the next five years with the right policies in place. Smart cities like Chattanooga will focus on data-driven and connected infrastructure, which will lead to higher adoption of technologies like AI and 5G. They'll also prioritize more digital services on behalf of their citizens, which has become vitally important in the post-pandemic world we're building right now. And I'm excited to say that with us today, we have the man leading this program, the Chief Information Officer for the City of Chattanooga, Brent Messer. In addition to sitting down with me for today's podcast, Brent's also going to be the featured speaker at Public Sector Network's upcoming virtual event, Architecting the Future of Your Smart City, on March 17th. So if you're listening to this episode and want to learn more about what he's building, I definitely encourage you to sign up for that free event. Just head over to Public Sector Network co slash events. Brent, welcome to the show, buddy. Really excited to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. So you guys are making great strides in the, not just the United States smart city conversation, but the global smart city conversation with this uh, program you guys were awarded uh, at the tail end of last year. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the program, what the process was like getting involved with them? That, uh, the Global Smart Cities Alliance, the G20, it's a lot has to do with mapping policies and things like that for uh, um, policy for smart cities and, and, you know, basically coming up with some kind of roadmap for that. Uh, we're still in the initial stages. They are still in the initial stages of it. And it's mostly made up of European countries and uh, countries from around the world. We are one of two U.S. cities, including uh, my buddy Rob Lloyd out in San Jose, California, who's the CIO out there. No, it's, it's very cool. And I, I'm, I like the the focus on policy, because I think that's been one of the kind of the inhibitors around kind of the evolution of smart cities. What have you seen there um, that perhaps you've learned from 
some of the cities over in Europe that are part of this program and, and some lessons learned that we can bring back to the United States. There's a lot of stuff that they're doing there. Uh, they're also, I've, I've talked to some folks up in Canada. Uh, I went up to um, uh, Canada, Toronto, uh, I guess about two years ago, and we're talking about policies uh, with smart cities. And at that point, it was kind of focused on open data and kind of the privacy impact of, of the smart cities and the, and the data itself. Um, but now they've got into ITC accessibility, cyber accountability models, and open and openness and interoperability. Let's see, uh, privacy, transparency, pretty much the, the, the whole gamut. Um, some of the policies that haven't been written yet are like data architecture and control and data sharing requirements. Uh, so we're, we're trying to help be, a, I guess, a guinea pig, if you will. <laughs> yeah, and, no, it makes total sense. I'm, I'm glad you brought up City of Toronto because... Um, just a couple episodes ago, I had on uh, Lawrence Ita, the uh, CTO for the city of Toronto, and they got, they obviously had a really large uh, smart city program or connected communities, as as Lawrence called them, um, that that didn't end up coming to fruition based on some data privacy issues. So, what are you seeing on that front, and what are some ways that that you've looked to? I don't want to say overcome them, right? Because you can't sidestep that. But what are some ways that you've uh, engage those those issues and been able to continue to evolve uh, the rollout of your smart city. Well, you're always running into any kind of obstacle when it comes to anything, much less smart cities. But really, with the smart cities, it does have a lot to do with the privacy of data and personal protected data and what we can and can't release. As a government, we're you know we we our policy is we're open by default, um, and then we redact anything that is personal protected or. Um, could potentially cause some kind of harm, social security numbers, uh, driver's license numbers, addresses, things like that. Um, so you always run into those challenges there in the beginning of how to how to do that efficiently to where you're, you're, you're putting out as much data as possible, but with as little effort as possible. So that's always been an issue. And then of course, running into certain laws where certain types of things can't be done. Like they, they had those issues up in, in Canada. We have some of those issues here in Tennessee um, and I think California does too, if I remember talking with Rob about some of this stuff. So that's always a challenge. So I'm fascinated by kind of the idea around the data coming in. And it's more because of what can be done with the data in, in the positive, um, especially coming out of the pandemic. I think taking a lot of this data, turning in information and harnessing it for the good of the citizen is something that is ultimately going to drive um, an increase in smart city adoption uh, all over the world. What are some of the programs that you guys are leveraging this data for uh, on behalf of the constituents of the city of Chattanooga? Well, our open data and our data structure has only been around for the last, I guess, four or five years. We just started it a little while ago and it's grown significantly. Uh, we've, we're starting to get through some of it and mine it and look for interesting things that we just, we've put everything out there from, you know, number of tickets that police officers write to the number of fire calls to, you know, uh, air quality control, stuff like that. So the idea would be to uh, find some way to combine these things so that we can look for trends. Right. Um, and then of course we're getting into, when you go back to the smart cities aspects, we talk about IOT or the internet of things. Well, then we have another issue there. What do we do with that data? How do we collect that data? How much of that data is secure? And whether are the devices secure? Those types of things. So we're trying to put all that together into some nice, neat little package. We're not 100% there yet, but we're working on it. So, so on behalf of all my listeners, if you're collecting data about tickets being written by police officers, is this something that's happening beginning of the month, end of the month? <laughs> but 
When do we need to slow down a little bit? <laughs> no, uh, it, it's it's all the time. So it, <laughs> if you get it, if you get a ticket in the in the city limits, and the the city of Chattanooga police officer writes you a ticket, that's all done electronically. It's all done instantaneously. So we we have the data right there. So so when you say it's done electronically, what have you guys built into the back end to kind of facilitate? I'm guessing. When, when you're doing this, there's obviously a lot of processes that are, are kicked off when a, a ticket happens. Can you walk us through maybe what that looks like? They give you a general overview. Yeah, of course. so basically when the, when the officer writes a ticket, um, it, it's, we call it an e-ticket. They have a, a device in their hand that's just an e-ticket. When they take it back, instead of writing it in the old book that they used to have where they'd flip up the pages and everything, it's all done right there on the screen. They just check off the boxes. They go through the the, the list, um, and then they, they scan your driver's license, puts all your information and everything in there for them uh, so there's no mistakes. And then you go back and you, you sign it, and that's pretty much it. And then from there, they can print out a little receipt right there on the, on the printer. Um, and it, you know, they hand that to the driver and then they've got their court date and everything else. And then that information is transmitted via the car's, uh, um, computer that we have inside and the, the data transfer device and through, uh, we use cellular. And then that just goes back up to the, to the cloud and then goes back into our system and gets stored. So to your knowledge, how many cities, uh, let's just talk about the U S right now. How many cities across the U S are actually deploying, uh, an e-ticket system like this? I don't have that number right off the top of my head. Um, I know there are a few. Um, yeah, there, there. I would say there's quite a few. I'd say uh, maybe a quarter to a third are doing it. It's 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 a much more efficient process. Um, it makes things a lot more easy. When you're trying to track paper, it's so difficult. Yeah, when you got manual entry and the, the, the officer has to take his tickets back and then he has to put those in a pile and that pile gets sent up to somebody else and they do manual data entry. There's so many so many ways that you can have mistakes made and things get crossed up or get missed. So, well, Especially too, when you're talking about facilitating all of this in the middle of a pandemic, dealing with paper is not something that's ideal, obviously. Correct. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. So being the CIO of the city, um, and it's almost almost one year ago to the day um, where everything kind of in, in the U.S., everything kind of shut down. Everybody went into lockdown. Most everybody went and worked remotely, um, save for, for a few factions of people. What was that like as CIO? What were some of the things that you had to deal with initially and then having to evolve that out? Actually, it wasn't very difficult for us at all because we were prepared for it. Now we didn't we didn't anticipate something like this, but we we did anticipate we wanted full mobility. So back in 2016, we got rid of every desktop computer in the entire city, including with the engineers. We gave everybody laptops or tablets or something that was robust enough to do their job uh, and stacked accordingly, and then made it so that people could work from anywhere at any time. Um, our our systems are that way. We're cloud based. For the most part, um, for what we don't have, we've got uh, uh, secure VPN connections and things like that. So it was actually, it took us two days, which is, we were the fastest. From my understanding of talking to my CIO, CIO cohorts across the city, we were the fastest, at least on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> I know that for a fact. Um, but yeah, it took us two days to get out. And usually the, the second day was really only because there were a lot of, we have a lot of folks in the city who were, you know, challenge to get the equipment and everything back to their house. And, and we had to help with that. That was the biggest challenge, I guess, is trying to talk people into not using printers and to do e-signatures and things like that, because we hadn't quite gotten that far at that point. So so when you were going through that whole then process, the process of 
figuring out what you needed. What did that look like? Oh, yeah. Well, just all of a sudden, we now have to figure out how we're going to... Uh, my, my staff, we've been doing it for years, so it wasn't difficult. We've got Google Meets. So we, we that was that was the, the easy part. The hard part was, okay, how do we get people to do things from a digital standpoint. Okay. We, they can't take the big printers in their office because they share them. So how do they, what, what are we going to do? So we had to go through some of those processes and think about how we can get those, um, how we can get that paper or, or get rid of the original signatures and start working on that. That also had a lot to do with the law too. The governor had to sign several executive orders allowing uh, electronic signatures and things like that. That's a, one of the side effects or that's one of the, the issues with Tennessee is, is digital signatures on certain documents aren't really permitted and aren't allowed. Um, and then, of course, there's the other issue of how do we communicate and how we deal with counsel. That was the big issue. Uh, how do we get counsel? Because you know they have to meet every Tuesday, go over the agenda, and it has to be a public forum, and we have to give certain notice. Um, thankfully, we ended up um, getting that taken care of with uh, using Zoom and their um, web webinar software. As you went through the process of procuring some of the technologies that you needed to be successful in the middle of a fully remote uh, work environment, one one of the conversations I had with uh, with Lawrence was the the decentralization of maybe procurement um, and kind of what that looked like. And I think over time, there's been kind of overlap and fragmentation of technologies where um, you could actually consolidate into uh, easier use cases, easy, uh, into one vendor maybe for, for the enterprise. But that decentralization had, had really um, bred that. Uh, how do you guys approach the procurement from a strategy standpoint? Is it very centralized within one office? Or the, the way Lawrence put it, he, he kind of aligned principles that then flowed out to all the offices to ensure that while it was decentralized, it all centralized to a common uh, set of principles and goals. As far as we're concerned, we're, we're, we're fully centralized. Um, so all technology and stuff goes through our department and then purchasing department handles most of the procurement uh, under contract. When Once we have the contracts in place, we can procure anytime we want. And we have several vendors that we have under those blankets. We call them blanket contracts. So it makes getting that very easily. Now, the side effect or the, the downside to that is we have a limit in how much we can procure in a specific specified amount of time. So uh, we did have to go before council and get an approval to actually extend that limit just to, to, to purchase some of the things that we needed to right away because it was kind of considered an emergency purchase at that point. Uh, but other than that, it's we're, we're fully centralized and it's easy to get stuff. Of course, we had a lot of it in place already, so that made it even easier. No, and it, it makes complete sense. I mean, but besides moving physical computers, like you mentioned, what other challenges did you find, though, throughout the pandemic? Mostly just with people. And it, it took a little while, I think, and I, I noticed this trend. Like I said, you know, my staff, we've been working remotely for, for years. So it's we come and go as we please. We, we work from the coffee shop, work from, you know, wherever. That's always been the culture of my department. But having other people in the city who are used to being behind a cubicle or used to being behind a, a, a glass partition where they're talking to customers or talking to citizens face to face, getting you see that trend of it. It's everything slows down for a little bit for those those areas, those departments, and then it started to slowly ramp up as people got used to the idea of working at home. And then I think the other challenge, too, and it's a challenge that even I myself have. I have two kids here who are in school 
and they're remote schooling and they're, they're sitting real close to me. And that's difficult because now I'm balancing three kids and my own work schedule and the wife and everything else and all in the same house. And we're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that can be pretty <laughs> challenging. We've, we've heard that from, from several staff members. We've heard that from several staff members, um, across the, uh, across the city that that's been a big challenge. And ironically, you would think that everybody likes working from home and, there are quite a few people in the city that we've realized that don't like working from home. And that's been a challenge. And then we've got some that want to go back and forth now that we're opening offices back up a little bit. So now we have to think, okay, they, they want their monitors. They've taken them home. How do we get them back to work? And then what if they go back home and they're going to want the monitors? So some people are wanting to buy extra monitors and we're trying to look at the logistics of that and what the cost is. And so there's, there's a few other challenges there. Yeah. So, so what is that going to look like for you um, from a workforce perspective? Are, are you guys going to kind of embrace and let people who do want to work remote continue to work remote? Are you going to look for um, just a hybrid workforce, which seems like it, it's probably what most people are going to default to? What does it look like in Chattanooga? From a uh, technology, from an IT standpoint, yeah, we're, we're going to remain this way. In fact, uh, depending on what the, the new administration coming in, we uh, we might not renew our lease in our building because <laughs> if we're not there, what's the point in spending, you know, that's another hundred and some odd thousand dollars we can save taxpayers and use for something else like smart cities tech or paving roads or whatever the case may be. Um, but as for the city itself, we, there has been some conversations about allowing that to, to remain in, in place. And I think it's not just going to be us. I think I've had uh, conversations like this with uh, cohorts all over this, all over the, uh, the United States. And the, the premise is kind of the same, you know, this works, it's more productive in some ways it cuts and reduces overhead. And now that cities can start to see where they can save extra. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't have to have big offices and don't have to have uh, crammed buildings and things like that, it just makes more sense. Plus it's good for staff and good staff morale because, you know, they, they don't have to get in, spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes in traffic getting downtown, uh, you know, uh, or have to worry about a quick lunch break or, you know, things like that. Um, so I'm hoping to see this stay in, in our city as a, as a, as a normal thing. Now, from an economic standpoint, economic development standpoint, I'm wondering if the downtown, because, you know, a lot of our smart city tech and stuff like that, we focus on the downtown area. I'm wondering if that's going to change that dynamic a lot, because there's a lot of a lot of social activity downtown. There's a lot of people walking around. It's very walking walkable uh, city. You know, we have the free shuttles that goes up and down uh, Market Street and um, and the other streets that we have. And it's. I'm wondering how that's going to change that dynamic or if it's going to go back to the way it was. Because if people are working remotely, they're not going to be downtown. They're going to be at home. So that I'm curious about. No, and I think it's definitely something you you need to take into consideration when you're rolling things out. And it brings up a really good point. So you've been looking at smart cities and, and evolving the city of Chattanooga since before the pandemic. How has COVID changed some of your strategies around um, rolling out the the city, um, the, the city of the future that you are, is it very similar to what you're just talking about? Is it thinking about it from a uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint? Are there technologies that you're now looking to deploy um, post pandemic because of COVID that maybe you weren't thinking about 12, 18 months ago? Yeah, it it really is kind of a social economic. Um, way of looking at things like, like I was saying before is figuring out, okay, which technologies w we were going to use, are these viable anymore? Do we need to worry about that? Do we need to look at something else? 
Um, we still want to look at air quality and water quality uh, sensors and things like that because that's important. But if the traffic pattern changes downtown, we're going to get a whole different aspect, <laughs> a whole different uh, reading from that. Um, so where do we need to go to put more of these? Do we need to put them out in the suburbs? Because <laughs> if, if that's where the traffic is going to be now, uh, you know, and the traffic lights and things like that from the from the um, the smart lights and, and that that type of uh, concern. But then also thinking about um, just thinking about the 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 interaction. Right. And how we interact with the technology, because I'm mean, give you an example. You go into, you know, you got your, your, your Wi-Fi, your wireless cards and things, and you can just tap your card or your your iPhone on a, a, a payment module. And but you still have to press the buttons to put your pin in on some of them. It's, you know, thinking about things like that. You know, how can we make this touch free? And then also we have people coming in. We don't know what's going to happen after the pandemic. Is this the pandemic may go away? But is the coronavirus going to go away? Is this something that we're going to have to deal with on an annual basis like we do with the flu? We're going to get a, a vaccine every year, just like we get a flu vaccine. Well, so and if it's that serious and, you know, we do have folks that don't like vaccines and that's OK, that's their choice. But what kind of tech do we put to protect other you know, citizens? Uh, do we have bioscans? And then, again, there's the security of that. And what, what do we do with that data? And what's the you know, how does that work? Um, and then how valid is it? Well, what, what's it going to do for us and how's it going to help protect? So all of these things are, are coming into play. Especially coming out of the pandemic, there's been, at least from what I've seen, all kinds of new technology. We're looking at drones that are um, sanitizing things and just finding new ways to live in, in our new normal. What's some of the just cooler technology that you've seen coming out uh, to, for lack of a better word, combat the pandemic? There's a lot of cool stuff out there. Uh, there's things that, you know, they, they, like you said, one of the things that I thought was pretty cool actually was I just saw this the other day was the drones that were, that were flying around and they were looking at using those to, to sanitize, you know, uh, parking meters. And I thought that was weird. It's like you're sanitizing parking meters with a drone. Um, so I, you know, most of the, the, the high tech stuff of being able to identify body temperature as somebody's walking through facial recognition stuff. I, I, I really think, and what we're, we're focusing on right now is using AI and machine learning to be able to automate a lot of things around the city. So we're, we're, we're now kind of shifting from that. Well, we were looking at filling potholes and looking for blighted cities using cameras on our, our, um, our garbage trucks because they're the only truck that hits the entire you know city for the most part um or only city vehicle that hits every city or every street for the most part and then okay are we going to shift from that and looking at potholes and blighted cities how else how can we use this to help with post-pandemic type stuff and we're really not sure i mean we we haven't figured that out yet but it, it, the thought is there so i i don't know that's there's a lot of cool stuff out there that could probably help you you mentioned your city's on uh, cellular, powered by cellular, and I know you guys are called the Gig City. Um, how do you see 5G evolving smart cities? And I mean, honestly, if you're looking strategically at smart cities, 6G is not far away, right? right um, how, how do you look at the evolution of these types of uh, technologies and driving the ability of what you just said, leveraging AI, uh, ML, and just edge computing um, to be able to offer up services to citizens? Yeah, it's it's going to have a huge, massive impact, and it's going to make things a lot easier. Uh, the faster the network speeds we can get, you know, uh, wirelessly, 
the more data we can push. So instead of having like go back to that example with the garbage truck and the camera on it, as it's driving around town, it's automatically taking video and the, identifying potholes and marking which ones have been repaired, which ones haven't and tracking them over time, looking for blighted property, looking for garbage cans that haven't been put out, you know, things like that. But we have to wait till that truck gets back to a, a, an area where it can be uploaded or back to the station or something along those lines. Cause we just don't have the bandwidth to push that much data through right now. So 5g and then again, 6g, that's going to change that to where it can be. Hopefully maybe it can, we can do it in real time and then we can pick things up on the fly. I, I think that's a really unique use case. You mentioned putting cameras on devices that are actually mobile. I think oftentimes I've thought about smart cities and the devices that are out there. And it's often been on uh like a static position, like a light post um, or something of that nature. Um, are there other things that are mobile throughout the city that you guys are leveraging sensors to kind of drive value? Yes. Um, so we, we have what the uh, what you said before, we have static cameras all over the city as well um, for traffic and for uh, our, our police real-time and um, intelligence center that we built. And we, we have mobile cameras as well. We have trailers that have uh, sensors on them and cameras on them that we can position in specific spots, uh, hot spots. And it's kind of interesting because um, you would think that somebody doesn't want to have a camera in their neighborhood, you know, looking at them, but it's the exact opposite. We've had a lot of requests. The police department had a lot of requests to actually put that out there in their neighborhood because it has reduced the amount of crime that's been out there uh, and the time that it's been there. And right now, I think we only have two of those trailers. Um, but, you know, we put cameras and, and stuff inside the police cars, the fire trucks, the garbage trucks, a lot of the public works vehicles. Uh, the goal would be to get sensors and cameras in everything. And we're not just talking about just cameras, but also we're talking about um, we're putting accelerometers in the vehicles as well. So we can tell, you know, not only how fast it's GPS coordinated, so we know how fast they are. We know where they went. We know uh, um, whether they brake hard or whether they accelerate hard or, or you know, those types of data. Um, that all becomes useful from not only a safety aspect for the citizens, but also for the officers, for the driver, drivers of the trucks um, and public works and everything else. No, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I remember doing a presentation about a year and a half ago um, at a security conference, and we were talking about uh, connected devices relating to public safety and uh, most specifically law enforcement. And it, you mentioned accelerometer and it got me thinking, I know some of the things that they have as well are um, smart weapons. So you can actually, with the accelerometer, it can, it can give feedback on when a gun has been pulled out of a, a smart holster, um, where, where it's been moved, what type of trajectory it has, when obviously when a, when a bullet's been fired, um, what the position in the weapon is, when it was fired, all of that type of information. Um, as well as connecting it to different disparate devices on the officer, like the, the uh, police officer body cam, um, yeah. and, and integrating all those type of pieces. Um, and then the other aspect was the, the, the human or the home devices, the consumer devices, like a ring or a Nest doorbell, kind of creating a mesh network of cameras to add into the ecosystem that you've already created within the city. Is that, is that something you're also thinking and how to integrate all of those kind of law enforcement devices into um, that ecosystem and connect everything? Absolutely. That's been on our radar for, for a while, um, especially how to integrate uh, private citizens uh, cameras. I have cameras on the outside of my house. In fact, my neighbors call me sometimes and say, hey, somebody, you know, 
did whatever so-and-so they were up the street. Can you see, check your camera and see if you got a picture of their license plate, you know? Um, so how can we tie that stuff into our real-time investigation, our real-time intelligence center? Uh, that's been on the, yeah, we definitely love to do that. We haven't figured out how yet, but we'd, we'd like to. <laughs> and so, so obviously all of that then leads into the conversation around security. Um, not just the security of the data, which we already kind of talked about a little bit, especially when it relates to data privacy, but the security of the devices. Um, and I think especially coming out of uh, the SolarWinds situation that we had, we look at and kind of say, there's really nothing that's safe out there, but now add into that ecosystem, uh, thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of devices and sensors that are out there. How are you approaching the security of all of these devices, ensuring that that they're not getting hacked and that the data is going to the right place. Right now, it just has, has to do with the network and being on a secure network for our, our personal stuff uh, for the city. Now, when you start talking about, you know, citizen devices and things like that, it gets a little more tricky. But again, that we go back to the Global Smart Cities Alliance, where we started in this conversation and talking about policy, and we're especially with IoT. And that's one of the things that we're trying to work on with IoT and IoT manufacturers is making sure that security is actually at the front foremost of their thought when they're building these devices, because a lot of these devices are not secure. They really aren't. So yeah, that's a huge concern. So it kind of goes back to that, also that procurement conversation we had where you're putting in those parameters. It's one of the reasons I would imagine that you have it centralized because you you want devices that are security by design Correct. instead of that's having to, to worry about it, doing it yourself. Correct. That's one of the exact reasons why we we centralize that. Everything has to go through us first and we have to check it off and make sure it's the appropriate stuff. It's just not something that somebody goes out to a conference and says, hey, this is cool. I'm going to buy it and then let us figure out how to do it. And then when it gets hacked, we go, oh, crap. <laughs> so no, we, we always want to look at that stuff first. So before before we wrap up and I give you a chance to kind of give any final thoughts you want to, I, one question I have, as CIO of the city of Chattanooga, what are, what are a couple of things that are keeping you up at night, even beyond this smart city evolution? Um, what are some challenges? It, it sounds like you had your city really positioned well to pivot when the pandemic hit, even though it's not something you, I would have imagined ever expected, but you still had the infrastructure and, and the components and the culture, most importantly, in place to be able to pivot. What are some things that are, are keeping you up at night right now, though? Not a lot, actually. I sleep very well. <laughs> if you'd asked me this question <laughs> five years ago, it would, I would have had a bunch of answers for you. Um, we've we've come a long way uh, in building a, a, a smart city that we have and the infrastructure and the technology that we use. So um, I sleep well at night thinking about that. But if there are some things that still bug me, and it still is the security aspect of it. And, you know, ransomware does does bother me and that's always going to be on our mind and we've always said it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when so we're very diligent about that we have very robust security policies um, and we take all the precautions we possibly can we are cloud-based with most stuff but that doesn't mean it, it it still doesn't you know occasionally does keep me up at night <laughs> that makes sense i mean ransomware is something we didn't even touch on uh in this conversation and especially at the the state and the localities it's been uh, heavy targets. Um, I mean, there's oh, yeah. so much data and information that they can hold hostage. So um, I would imagine that had to be something certainly was was top of mind, especially during the pandemic. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I, I talk to other CIOs about, and especially when you're talking about government, you have infrastructure that is, in some cases, I'll give you an example for Chattanooga seven years ago, the average age of, of technology in our city from um, from an internal city perspective, not the city it, itself as a whole, um, was 15 years old. So we had systems that were still 40 years old in production. So it's, And that's the same thing with like Atlanta and with Baltimore and with all the cities that got hit is it's either that 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 infrastructure that's not kept up or it's um, out of date things or it's a lack of funding and we really push the issue with council and with um, with the mayor's office that we have to put some money into this and we have to spend it and I promise you that we'll we'll save money in the long run <laughs> <And> <laughs> it'll, it'll it'll save our skins in the long run it sounds and like it, it was the the good yeah it sounds like it was a good investment to make absolutely um, but- any final thoughts you want to leave uh, our audience with today? Uh, yeah, keep uh, keep thinking about smart cities and 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 keep uh, generating those ideas. We like to get community involved in our projects. Um, our our uh, my Chattanooga project is one of them. We got a lot of feedback from our citizens during that stuff. So go out there and talk to your uh, talk to your folks in technology and talk to your folks in your city and your your county and your area and and get involved and and help make this a reality so that we can make the the, the world a much smarter place. Very cool. Thanks for joining us today, Brent. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And again, I wanted to remind you, Brent's also going to be the featured speaker at Public Sector Network's upcoming virtual event, Architecting the Future of Your Smart City, on Wednesday, March 17th. So if you were listening to this episode and want to learn more, um, I encourage you to sign up for that event. It's free. Uh, Just head over to publicsectornetwork.co backslash events, uh, and you'll find it right there. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.